Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guests as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. All right, everyone, welcome into another episode of The Winsome Creationist. Today, I am joined by a new friend of mine, and hopefully uh, we'll be friends for a long time to come because I so appreciate him and the work he's doing. Uh, Dustin Burlett. Dustin, welcome onto the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Steve. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this since uh, I think you first reached out to me um, right after I started this podcast. And so for a, f- a couple months now, we've been talking about this and um, man, it's so it's so exciting. So what I'd like to do is just kind of send the discussion your way for just a moment and let you introduce yourself. Uh, how'd you get your start in biblical studies? What are you doing now? What's your education in? And uh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that sounds good, Steve. So I got my start in biblical education when my sister went to Bible college at Peace River Bible Institute. So that's in Western Canada, north of uh, about five hours north of Edmonton, which is a centralized location in Alberta. And so my sister went to Peace River Bible Institute. My first cousin went to Peace River Bible Institute. And I saw the change in their lives. And I knew that what they had was something that I wanted as well. Little did I know that I'd be devoting the rest of my life, basically, to biblical studies and theological education. So I started with a bachelor of biblical studies there. And actually it was a bachelor of religious education, but, and my minor was in camping. I wanted to spend my whole life devoted to Christian camping ministries because Circle Square Ranch in Halkirk, Alberta changed my life. So I had spent over 10 different years, uh, 10 different summers volunteering at Christian camping ministries through Halkirk, Alberta, and Circle Square Ranch. My sister was the director of the sports program at Peace River Bible Institute. But after I graduated, the Lord uh, took a turn in my life away from camping ministry to pursue full-time teaching through going back to PRBI as a faculty member. So after I graduated, the Lord in his wisdom brought me to Providence Theological Seminary. And there I earned a Master of Divinity in Biblical Languages, And there I met my wife, Rebecca. She was involved in a counseling program there. My wife is a psychotherapist and she loves to be a people helper. It's one of the greatest joys that uh, the Lord has placed in her heart. And so after I earned my MDiv, I went back to PRVI with my wife. We had two children there. And in the providence of God, I was teaching a course on science creation, the Bible. It was an elective course. And I was beginning to experience some challenges with the flood. And another challenge that I was experiencing was finding a textbook on the flood that I felt did justice to the topic. So around my third or fourth year, I was reaching out to different people. I reached out to Tremper Lawman and I reached out to John Walton. And I said, you know, you two have written some exceptionally good works on various topics. Tremper was one of my teachers at Providence. He taught me Proverbs. And so we had built up uh, something of a relationship. I'd also been in touch with Dennis Lamru because he was a, uh, an instructor at the University of Alberta, which, of course, is very close in proximity to PRBI. So mm. a good portion of my students in my science creation, the Bible class went to his classes and a good portion of my students went on to his classes. So there was a lot of back and forth. 
But when I began to engage with the topic of the flood, one of the things that continued to come up was nobody that I was aware of or nobody that I knew could provide me some of the answers that I was looking for. And nobody that I was in touch with had written a topic, uh, had written a book on that topic that I felt did justice to it. So at about year three or four, my mentor and my advisor, Dr. Gus Conkle, he officiated Rebecca's and I's wedding. And we became very good friends through Providence Theological Seminary. He was the president at that time. He made a transition away from Prov to McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. And he encouraged me to give up my full-time teaching post. I was there for about three or four years to pursue a PhD in biblical studies. And I didn't know if that was a prudent decision or not. That's a big decision. So he sent me this big, long email on all the reasons why I should go for my earning my terminal degree. And I sent him this big, long email back. And for every point that I gave, he offered a very good counterpoint. So I I had this email that I actually posted on the door and taped. So every time I went to work, I would see this email and this discourse between Gus and me. And eventually the Lord uh, persuaded me that this was, in fact, the right decision to do. And I left to go and I earned my terminal degree. I have a PhD in Old Testament from McMaster Divinity College. Dr. Gus Conkle was my first advisor and Dr. Mark Boda was my second advisor. And after I graduated, it was COVID. And as you know, COVID turned the world upside down. So I actually had a online graduation ceremony. And the big decision that a person has to make if it's an online graduation ceremony is, do you shine your shoes? And I decided (laughs) to shine my shoes. I think it was the right decision to make to honor the the significance and and the event itself. I agree. I love that. We moved from Hamilton back to Manitoba, but not to go and teach at Providence Theological Seminary, uh, which was what I thought in the Lord's wisdom it was going to be. I actually ended up moving to a new startup school called Miller College of the Bible. Now, when I say it's a new startup school, there's actually three different campuses. One is in British Columbia, in Sunnybury. One is in Saskatchewan. And then this one had only started about two or three years ago. And so I was on the forefront of it. So they were offering a brand new uh, level of education, a brand new program of education in downtown Winnipeg. And the very first course offered was on Genesis. So I called up the academic dean and I said, you know, I think that you need me as a guest speaker in your course. And he said, yes, I think that I do. So I came, I went, I offered a lecture on the flood. And afterwards, they offered me the opportunity to be an adjunct faculty. And now I'm a permanent staff member with a full time employment at Miller College of the Bible. So that's a bit of a convoluted history, but it gives you a bit of an understanding of where I'm at. No, that's that's fantastic. It's exactly what I what I wanted. One of the things I'll just go ahead and ask this question now because I noticed it. Um, you you know you talked about Tremper Longman, you talked about Dennis Lamaru and some of these guys. You know the fact is these are people that if you know anything, if you're sort of in this world of creationism, those are names that you know, you don't typically hear very often. Um, at least quoted in a very positive light. And one of the things that I've noticed as I've engaged with your content, read your book, and um, which we're going to talk about that, most of this discussion is going to center around uh, the topics from your book, of course. But I did want to touch on this because it's so important to me that you not only engage with but speak 
highly of um, some brothers and sisters, no doubt, who disagree with especially the view that that you know we take um here on this podcast of especially young age creationism and one of the things i'm passionate about because i love biblical studies is honoring the significance of the ancient near eastern worldview of the bible the fact that israel was a nation in in this time and of course even before israel was formed like these are all important things and i think there's a tendency in creationism to um, throw the baby out with the bathwater and not actually give uh, credence where it's due to some of the insights that we can glean about the Bible from studying other ancient Near Eastern texts. We'll talk more about that later, but what I specifically want to get into is the idea that you are used to engaging with these scholars, and like I said, speaking highly with them uh, or, or highly of them. I know people who would tell folks like, you know, just people in the pew or even people interested in creationism not to read guys like that, you know, because it goes against whatever your views are. And so I'm just curious if you have any tips really for engaging with material of theirs and, and others without fear that you're going to find some big boogeyman hiding in the shadows um and just your general thoughts about engaging with people like that that we disagree with sure so you know one of the things that used to be quite popular was the 3d movies you know you'd go to the movies and it would be like right there in your face and whenever you come to a person that you perhaps disagree with or perhaps somebody that you felt their position might need to be more nuanced or more textured I like to offer the 3D approach to engaging with your material. And the first one is to discover. You know, if you are trying to refute somebody, it becomes increasingly difficult to refute them intelligently or to even be able to offer an educated perspective if you yourself personally have not read that book or if you have not engaged with that article or even if you don't know that person personally. So, for instance, Trevor... And I, uh, he, I was a student of his, and Dennis Lamru. Uh, we have the opportunity to call each other on the phone pretty regularly, and we get to pray for one another and encourage one another in our ministries. I've often been blessed by my interactions with him. But if you don't first discover, what you tend to end up being is you become um, ill-informed, ill-educated, and regrettably, if I could put too fine a point on it, ignorant. And I feel that that does a tremendous disservice to, one, the academy, but also, two, uh, just your own capacity to uh, be able to engage more intelligently, not just what I believe, but why I believe it. So in all of my classes, my students are required to write a personal position paper on a fairly controversial topic. We actually use the four views on the historical atom as our basis. Oh, but nice. you have to create a personal position paper on the historical atom, and you have to engage very intelligently with all the different perspectives, including the non-historical atom. And you have to engage with the top material and the top minds in that field, not just saying why perhaps they're wrong, but you also have to state all of their pros of their position and all the areas where they, in fact, perhaps might be right or perhaps might be able to engage more intelligently on the subject. So the first D is simply to discover. And the second D is to decide. So first you discover and then you, oh, pardon me. I actually missed one. First you discover. The second one is you discern. So mm -hmm. once you have intelligently engaged with these materials, then you begin to sort and you sift. 
And the grid is always the canon of scripture. Scripture is the plumb line by which you measure whether or not anything is true or accurate. And so you use scripture as your plumb line. And I have good reason to believe that whenever we engage in God's word, it will never be in contradiction to God's world. So if you see an apparent contradiction, you have to go back and ask yourself, have I misunderstood the science? Because the beaker and the Bible would never be in ultimate conflict with each other. So you got to first ask yourself, have I misunderstood the science? And the second question is, have I misunderstood the scriptures? And so once you have discerned and you have run it through the theological grid and you've exercised a good methodology and you've engaged in, in good hermeneutics, then the third D is to decide. This is what I believe, and I have an informed and intelligent reason for believing it. So first you discover, then you discern, and then you decide. Yeah, I appreciate that. As simple as that sounds, most people don't do it, right? It is often um, regrettable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the other questions I wanted to ask you kind of goes nicely along with this, and that's just, you know, I've noticed just how winsome you are. Uh, you know, no pun intended here. We're on the winds well, of creationist. That's part of why you're on. But like, but like, you're very, very gracious in, in, in interacting with them. Where does that come from? And did it take a while to develop that skill? It's another rare one. Well, thank you for that. I don't, I can't take any credit for how I was raised. I was raised by very godly uh, parents and I've had very godly influences in my life, both from my teachers, from my extended family, from all of my different mentors and the different advisors in my life. But the truth is, when it really boils down to it, it's very hard to demonize somebody that you love. And one of the mm. greatest ways to be winsome is simply to actually find something that you appreciate about the person and that you actually genuinely like about them. And so yeah. I have a genuine admiration and respect, first of all, for the quality of scholasticism that many of these individuals bring to bear on the topic. But I also have a tremendous respect and appreciation for their heart. There are so many people who I know who are trying to put other people down. But regrettably, what it does is I can't remember precisely where it's written, but it's it's written very explicitly. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building one another up. And I don't believe that irrespective of our different positions, that we are ever actually in competition with each other. Iron always sharpens iron. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Yeah. I believe that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So irrespective of where a person's theological position is, I have good reason to believe that if you better understand their story, if you better understand their history, if you better understand their background, and if you can quote-unquote walk a mile in their shoes, you will always exercise compassion and grace and sensitivity and you might even be able to learn a thing or two that you hadn't before. One of my favorite books that I had read on this journey was called The Atom Quest. And it's simply a, 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 series of bio, uh, a series of biographies of different people from theistic evolutionists to young earth creationists. And the more that you read the stories of, let's say, Mary Schweitzer or different individuals, the more you begin to understand these are very often sincere and very heartfelt Christians who genuinely and honestly want to continue to serve and further the kingdom of God. Even Janet mm -hmm. Kellogg Ray's book, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, with a question mark. She speaks so 
often of how much she's trying to minister to her students in class. And that is something that I love. I want to bless the kingdom of God. And he only does it through people. So let's begin to love people. That's so important. You know, listen, we're going to get into the content of the book in just in just a moment. I, I promise. But for those listening, you know, give me a little grace here because I really, yes, I want to introduce Dustin's work, but I really also want to introduce Dustin as a person to the extent that I can to this audience because I have a feeling we're going to be chatting um, quite a bit more in the future. With that said, permit me to ask one more sort of generalized question before we dive in, into the book uh, content, because I'd love to hear your perspective on this. So you talked about that 3D model, which I love because as simple as it is, it's something that we need to be reminded of. You know, one of the criticisms that oftentimes young earth creationists um, tend to have of other scholars and by the way, I, I share, I mean, I've made this criticism publicly before, and, you know, I think to a certain extent, I still stand by it. But I wanted to ask you, because you have this particular way of approaching things, and also you're you're very well plugged into the community, and the criticism that often comes from, from the young age creationists like me is, well, while oftentimes we are engaging with their materials to see what they have to say. Sometimes it doesn't seem like they're engaging with our materials to see what what we have to say. And um, I guess I would like to just have sort of your perspective on that. Do you think that's true? Are we off base uh, as young age creationists by saying that? Or if we're not, is there a better way to approach it? What are your thoughts? You know, I appreciate that you mentioned that because Uh, A person never wants to somehow communicate that the only reason to be winsome is to become a doormat. You know, we don't ever want to somehow believe that, you know, I will be a a, a lap dog, so to speak. But in my personal experience, I haven't found what you have been describing, Steve. And Mm. allow me to be fairly explicit. When a person looks at the endorsements in my book, yes, you have people like Bill Barrett. Uh, who have endorsed my book. Bill Barrick is a very prominent and uh, very effective young earth creationist scholar. But -hmm. you also have John Golden Gay. And you also have uh, certain other people on there who aren't exactly on the same spectrum. And C. John Collins is perhaps the most explicit one on there. And what I have found is all too often, if you want your material to be well-received and well-understood, it has to be always of superb high quality because what i find is there is a lot of uh times when sometimes people want to allow the presupposition to make the argument rather than the argument itself to be uh what is merited or what is evaluated and so i feel in my own experience i haven't been ignored i haven't been bracketed out And some of the top minds in the field, irrespective of their positions, have willingly engaged with and endorsed my work. Interesting. Okay, very good. I seem to remember even hearing Dr. Barrick talk about that in one of his lectures where, you know, he's openly had discussions with folks like uh, Dr. Lamaru and others surrounding these topics. And so I think the point you made is good. As long as what we're talking about is high quality scholarship, there ought to be a willingness to engage with it all across the board. Um, so I, I appreciate that. So speaking of your book, um, you wrote a book called Judgment and Salvation. It's a 
Incredible book. I loved it. Um, it is technical, right? Which is expected. I, I'm assuming it came out of your PhD thesis. I, I believe that's correct. Yeah, it's a revision of my dissertation. Hence the <laughs> emphasis on some of the more technical aspects. Understood. Understood. Now that said, though, you do take plenty of space uh, within the book to try to, um, you know, make sure that we're understanding the practical application. So definitely want to get into to that more so than anything um, today. So let me just throw some questions at you. Um, early in the book, you say that the Noachian deluge narrative is a stage for indescribable redemption, deliverance, and salvation, not a cosmic flop of inexpressible destruction and judgment. So what do you mean by that? Kind of introduce us to, to your book a little bit. You know, one of, uh, one of the more recent interviews that I had uh, seemed to be very hung up on the idea that the flood was a wash. Or in other words, that the flood really was just a, a great experiment by the mad scientists in the sky. And I believe that that is a very strong misunderstanding of what the flood and its nature truly is. And not to put too fine a point on it, but if a person really does believe that the flood was a wash or some kind of cosmic mistake on the part of the deity, that is a God that is very difficult to want to serve and a very difficult God to want to love and offer your heart to in all of its different facets. And so I believe that it's vitally important to have a right understanding of the character and nature of God and that God is ultimately not some mad scientist in the sky, not some kind of little boy with a magnifying glass trying to kill the ant and not somebody just pulling the wings off of a fly. If that's your mindset of God, there's a good reason to experience significant trauma when reading the flood. And in fact, it ought mm. to be uh, not used in Sunday schools or in any type of children's curriculum. But that's not, I believe, an accurate understanding of the flood. A more accurate understanding of the flood is God does not wish that any should perish. He does not want any to die. And we see that throughout the rest of scripture in the in the canonical literature, we have people interceding for Israel or for different cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you wipe away the righteous with the wicked? And of course, the answer is by all means, no, I won't do that. And so we have good reason to believe that when it says that the world at that time was filled with Hamas, Yes, there's some corporate solidarity going on with there. Just like you've got the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, there was mm -hmm. innocent people who received collateral damage from other people's sins. That, regrettably, is the story of all of humanity. It is the truth. There is no such thing as a private sin. What we do stains our world, and it brings pollution and sickness and it affects others. It's a lot like secondhand smoke. It's not just your lungs that are affected. It's the world around you. And unfortunately, all too often in our Western society, we have an individualistic mindset. And we think, no, it's just me and my sin. No, sin has a tremendous effect on this world. And yes, there is tremendous collateral damage that has occurred. But it is not some kind of cosmic flop. What the flood does is it's the first time that the concept of covenant is introduced into the text. And what covenant does is it offers the opportunity to recalibrate the relationship between a fallen humanity 
and a sovereign, holy, and almighty God. It's an extension or an invitation to enter back into fellowship with a being through whom sin has spread and pushed you away. Yeah. And so you 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 came to this conclusion of basically, if we could just summarize it, basically that the narrative of the flood is focused not on God's judgment or or anger in the situation, even though that's what we often uh, think about. We but often actually, think of doom and gloom when we yeah. read the flood. Yeah, that's that's right. But but actually, um, salvation was the emphasis of of the passage. And this is sort of a side point, but you know. I just had a I just had the thought that a lot of times creationists are obsessed with like there's even a whole um uh display in the Ark Encounter about how um we have made light of this issue, right? And we've we you know put the little um f- the little funny arc together in our children's stories and 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 all of that. And there's this obsession with understanding the gravity of the of the judgment. And while that's true, I actually think your book sort of gave me a new appreciation. Um for those children's stories and and those little books, even though they may not, um, you might have an unintended side effect, and this is where we need to be careful of making it seem like some fairy tale ha- thing that happened in a, in a world long, long ago. It's not that. It's just I think the children's stories get right the emphasis on salvation over judgment, and so I think that's something that we should be careful to uh, to balance out. If it um, wasn't for the cross of Christ, we would never have the Sunday morning. And I believe mm-hmm. that there's a lot of parallels there between Genesis 9 being the quote-unquote Sunday morning and then Genesis 6 through 8 being the cross. That's right. Oh, I love that. That makes a lot of sense. So you came to this conclusion um, using basically what you call a rhetorical critical analysis of the flood. Now, those are big words that might scare some people, uh, but let's talk through them. I, I'd love to know, you know, just a description of what is the rhetorical critical analysis? Is it something we should be afraid of? What does it accomplish? And how did that guide your, your work? Yeah, absolutely. So when I engage in my courses on biblical interpretation, that's one of my fortes that I love to teach. And Stan Porter, the president of McMaster Divinity College, is a world expert on true hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. One of my favorite courses that I took at McMaster Divinity College was his History of Biblical Interpretation course. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine, if you will, a triangle. And I often like to make the little quip that without geometry, life is pointless. (laughs) I know it's a bad joke. I'm full of bad jokes. It's a good, it's good, it's good. You've got a triangle diagram, and on the bottom left corner is history. Now, we believe that our conviction is is that 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 which has transpired in space and time are, in fact, real events. So one of the the great questions is, if Jericho was not raised, R-A-Z-E-D, is our faith in vain? Because, of course, the big question is, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, is our faith in vain? And the answer is yes. But if these other events that are purported to have transpired within space and time, if Jericho was not raised, is our faith in vain? And I have good reason to believe that, yes, some aspects have to be understood within its ancient Near Eastern context. To go back to quoting John Walton, the Bible may have been written 
for us, but it was not written to us. So there is yeah. a divide between our world and their world, and there's a cultural river. You know, we are divided by time and language and often even covenant in a lot of different places. And so you have to take into effect the different culture and environment. But for the most part, if the Bible says that a flood happened, then we have good reason to believe that a flood happened and we should look for evidence of a flood. Yeah. So the, the bottom left corner of the hermeneutical triad is history, but the bottom right corner is literature because the events that have transpired within space and time, they do not occur in a vacuum. And so they have to have been recorded and they have to have been recorded in a particular method. And that's where genre analysis is so key. Genre triggers reading strategy. And we automatically, just by intuition, sort and sift all of the material that we read and engage with according to genre. And one of the easiest examples that I know of is when you go to pick up your mail. When you get your mail, you sort out the bills from the letters, from the tax invoices, from the newspapers, and even within the mm -hmm. newspaper itself, you separate obituaries from the help wanted ads. You automatically sort and sift everything that you come into in accordance to a genre. And so with respect to the Bible, there's only two main types of genres, poetry and prose. And obviously there's little finesses within there because you've got right. historical narrative and you've got parable and you've got apocalyptic and you name it. All of these events that have transpired within space and time are all recorded in literature. But what I discovered when I was going for my PhD studies is far too many people want to focus on one of those two aspects. They want to get all tied up in, let's say, the science side and go right into the history and, the, and, the, and all this. But that isn't my area of expertise, nor my area of speciality. But within the greater world of the academy, all too often when people read the Bible, it's just literature. And I wanted to move the conversation beyond a literary analysis to the apex of that triangle diagram, where it's theology. And theology is the whole function and purpose of scripture. It wasn't just recorded to give you an understanding of what events have happened in the past. It's meant to shape and change how you live now. And that's what theology does, is it affects your understanding of God. It affects your understanding of who you are today and how to treat your neighbor and how to live in this world. And that's what rhetorical critical what rhetorical critical analysis focuses on is the art of persuasion and how the Bible as theology is trying to be a very persuasive document to actually try to shape and change your mind. It's actually trying to make a difference in your life. That's rhetoric and that's persuasion. It's more than literature. It's more than history. It's theology. Yeah. So the, so the goal is to basically then sort of dissect uh, dissect the text with a with a mind towards what did the reader of this text need to do as a response to what the original writer wrote is that fair that's very fair and that's exactly the way that i think that you should put it perfect perfect so i hope that sort of you know because Again, we know sometimes people can be touchy, but you know when we say rhetorical critical analysis, what we don't mean by that is 
Um, you know, that's not some like code word for find all the ways we think the Bible could be wrong based on what it said. You know, that's not what it means. It means figure out what the people were supposed to do who originally read this text. And I'm sure as we'll talk about, uh, as, as we, in the spirit of Romans 15, four read and I'm sure that there's something for us to do there as well. Um, and I just to be, yeah, just to be clear, Steve, the rhetorical critical analysis has as its foundation, what would be traditionally understood as the historical grammatical analysis of scripture. We take the words uh, in very high esteem. And so we're always putting the text within its context but rhetorical critical analysis is kind of like the cherry on top. So we do a historical grammatical reading of the text, and then we add that more uh, nuanced flair to it through the rhetorical critical aspect. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, okay, perfect. So it's based on, you know, we're, we're making sort of some of the assumptions that go into it with the historical grammatical method as well. So again, we're not trying to just sort of dismiss this text in any way. Um, the opposite is true. We're trying to take the words very seriously and then from that determine what people were supposed to do. And that historical grammatical analysis is key because is key because the history is that bottom left corner. These events transpire in space and time. The grammatical part is the literature, but it's not just history. It's not just grammar. It's not historical grammatical. It's theology. And so the apex is the persuasion. So you do the Perfect. groundwork and then you move on. Okay, fantastic. So based on that analysis, then, um, could you just go through maybe some of, I guess, like the most compelling markers? I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but the the things in the text that you saw based on this analysis that led you to the conclusion of an emphasis on salvation instead of judgment. Well, one of the things that I did find quite stimulating was I was asked to be a guest speaker at another school and I got the students, I photocopied the flood narrative, and I wanted them to have two different highlighters, a pink highlighter and a green highlighter. And every time you write a verse, all I wanted them to do was mark whether or not it was with respect to salvation or judgment. And the simplest way is, is this a positive or a negative statement? Good space or bad space? And just yeah. highlight it. And verse by verse, as you go through and then you count it up, it is actually surprising how much statistically the verses of scripture are emphasizing the positive versus the negative. And so that's just one very clear and simple thing is just go through the verses and count them up. And when you do that numerically, it is surprising how much the emphasis is on salvation. Another one is there's a very, uh, uh, there's a Hebrew word and its reference or its sense is all, every, each. So all of the animals of every kind went into the ark or everything that was under all the heavens they all perished and died that's universalistic language and so for those with at least minimal training in hebrew studies or who are able to use even a concordance such as the strong's concordance or the goodrick kallenberg or niv exhaustive concordance you can do this even on your own and you count up every time that there's this universalistic term, and then you find its reference. Is its reference to something positive, like all the animals entered the ark? Or is its reference negative, everything died? And when you count up the universalistic language, even the universalistic language statistics are in favor of the positive versus the negative with respect to salvation 
over and against judgment. And so those are two very simple things that even people without okay. Hebrew training can simply go to their Bibles and engage a few simple tools and come away with an increased nuance and understanding. Oh, yeah, I love that. And if you do have some training in, in Hebrew or even just a, a mind to look into the more technical aspects, I can attest from reading the book myself that you will have all of that to your heart's desire as you read through there. I mean, I, I think it's well done and it's very clear that you came to this conclusion um, very carefully and, um, if I may say, very studiously. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you. And just uh, yeah. for the sake of clarity, uh, there's been a little bit of feedback and pushback about how technical chapter two is. And that's my rhetorical critical method. I believe that some of the most mm. important parts of the whole book are actually in that chapter, particularly with respect to the two diagrams that I use. One is on the three tiered universe, because a lot of people use the three tiered universe or uh, what might be called. Um, so it's the Rakia. It's the, mm -hmm. the vault or the expanse. Some people would call it the firmament. But that is often a very sticky point for people to try to believe in a pre-scientific view or a pre-scientific understanding of the scriptures. And I engage in, in a fair amount of discussion there. And I feel it's one of the more important parts of the book. Another one is the picture of the Assyrian mm -hmm. Lamassu, the, um, the Assyrian uh, uh, guardian angel, much like the Finx is the guardian angel of Egypt. And there's some nuance and some texture there with respect to the five legs of the Lamassu that if you can understand what is going on there from a more uh, educated perspective, it will provide a more informed perspective of what I'm doing. But my mother-in-law, and I think that she would appreciate this, my mother-in-law read my whole book and she said, you know, Dustin, when I read chapter two, I felt confused. But because you repeated your method in every other chapter of analysis, chapter six of Genesis seven, eight and nine, by the time I was done the book, I knew more clearly and more persuasively what it was that you were trying to do. So spaced repetition is the best form of learning. And just yep. because you might not fully understand all of chapter two in one sitting doesn't mean that by the end of the book, you don't gain a more clear understanding of what it is that I'm trying to do. I appreciate that. I found the same exact thing. I found it very helpful that you consistently returned to the method and, and the model. Um, I'm a huge fan in general of spaced repetition, so that makes uh, a lot of sense um, to do it that way. And like I said, you, you'll have, you know, if you're into biblical study stuff, I mean, there's plenty to, plenty of candy to eat up in this book. Um, one of the things, I'm, I'm glad we went there because one of the things I wanted to talk about that I, I, I feel like it's a very important concept to the book, but as I've listened to some of your other interviews and things, I don't, I don't remember it um, coming up. And that's this concept of exigence. Um, you talk about, I think I'm saying the word right, exigence. Yeah, you're you talk, saying it correctly. Okay. Yeah, good. So you, you talk about this throughout the book. Um, and I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about what that is and then what it means for this study. Well, is it okay, Steve, if I ask you to elaborate on some of your own thoughts and kind sure. of the things that really stood out to you with respect to that matter, and then maybe I'll be able to piggyback off of that. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fine. So my my understanding of the issue of exigence, of exigence rather, is that it seems like there's a problem to be solved. It seems like something you know, and, and I, I, I kind of identify with this because what I do for a living is um, is marketing and lots of marketing is storytelling. And so, you know, you might not 
it's kind of funny that somebody like you and somebody like me can spend most of our time writing, even though we'll be writing completely different things on a completely different end of the spectrum. And yet at the end of the day, with respect to what I do and with respect to what you do, the thing that meets in the middle is this idea of persuasion. And persuasion, the thing about persuasion is persuasion involves movement from one place of thought to another place of thought, really, at its most basic. A, you got point B and you got to zap the gap. That's exactly right. I love that. Zap the gap. Probably going to use that. That's fantastic. And so what I know, especially as a marketing copywriter, is that if there is no pain, if there is no problem to solve, then ultimately there's nothing to persuade. Because when when you have to persuade somebody, uh, you know, backing up if there even is a problem, you know, you have to try to wake people up from their from their slumber. That's a much harder job than latching onto a problem that already exists and then persuading people beyond that. So, um, and I want to let you come in here, but my my general thinking on it is that um, when people are reading this, they are to an extent being introduced to, but given the time period that they would have been presented with this literature, they sort of already understand that there have been problems in their past. They're, you know, they're, they're under, um, you know, they've been exposed to the law. They understand that they're sinful before God. And so they know there's a, a problem to be solved. And my understanding is that exigence is sort of like a technical word for, um, elaborating the nuances of that problem that needs to be solved. So you can tell me if I'm way off base there, but that's my understanding. If, if I could commend you, Steve, you would have gotten an A plus if you happen to be my student and that <laughs> was an assignment. Very Yay. well done. You've explained things exceptionally well, given awesome. its technicality and specificity. When I were, if I were to describe exigence, it would be imagine that you are in Narnia at the very beginning of the creation of Narnia. And you've got Aslan and he's singing the world into existence. But then all of a sudden you realize that the queen Jadis is there and that is your exigence. And how will Aslan take care of the evil in his newly minted world? And ultimately the only solution to that was for him to offer his life as a sacrifice and then rise again and defeat Jadis. Mm. Exigence in our lives might not be the queen. It's actually our own sin. And it's our inability to respect and acknowledge the authority of God. Who knows better how to live our lives? God who created it or ourselves. And the exigence that we each face is Noah heard the word of the Lord. Noah was spoken to by God and he had a decision to make. Will I walk in obedience to God and therefore fulfill the call of God in my life? Or will I walk in disobedience like the people around me? And that is the same question that each one of us faces. We all know what the Lord's standards are in our lives. It's to love him and to love others. And if we fail to adhere to that standard, what we are basically saying is no I myself personally know better than God. I am a law unto myself. And that's no different than what Adam and Eve did. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and declared autonomy. 
They did not subserviate themselves to the authority of God. They became a law unto themselves. And so what exigence does is it tries to say, here is the problem. You are not God. And how will you live to live a life that is pleasing to this God? Yeah. So that is so fascinating because, again, as a writer in marketing and storytelling, we talk a lot about, you know, the hero's journey. You mentioned Narnia, you know, and there's all the examples that we could pull out. The obvious ones are, you know, there's only two types of stories in the entire world. One, uh, a stranger comes to town and two, someone goes on a journey. That is every single plot and storyline. Yeah, that's basically it. That's a really, really good point. Um, um, except the third one being maybe Hallmark movies, because they seem to have a particular framework figured out of their own um, that somehow works on all um, middle-aged women. Okay, so moving on. Um, I love this. I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me because I've never looked at, say, the story of Noah as almost like a miniature hero's journey sort of story. And if you look at it that way, I I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I I think that the original audience in their context might have looked at it more in that way. I believe that when you understand the flood narrative in light of a people in exile, they are on a hero's journey because Noah Mm. was in a boat with no sail, no rudder, and was completely at the mercy of God. When you read Isaiah and it brings comfort to the people saying, as it was in the days of Noah, these people are in exile, seemingly at the mercy of the wind and the waves and the storms of life. They would understand and identify with Noah in the dark, not knowing how his life would unfold and having to entrust himself to the sovereignty and goodness of God in all the same ways that those in exile would. Oh, exactly. That okay, that makes so much sense. I was going to ask you about the the fact that you know your assumption going into this is um, basically what this would mean for a post exilic final form of the text and, and those people. And so that's the idea. It's they're going to have to trust that God gets them through this period of time, just like Noah had to trust. And isn't it the same in our own lives too? Yeah, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. Yeah, yeah. So even for us then, you would say, you know, the the point is not God got mad at all these people and judged the world. I mean, that's part of it. You have to have judgment in order to have salvation. Um, but the overwhelming point is on this was a, this was a, a circumstance where Noah had to have great faith and often in our daily lives we have circumstances where we are going to have to have great faith and even when it seems like to you know use a little bit of a a a corny joke here when it seems like the world is drowning and flooding around us um where do to you know to whom do we turn where do we turn are we still going to be found faithful in the midst of the storm does that make sense well it does make sense but you use the term great faith and Perhaps I don't have as much faith as you, Steve, because one of the convictions that I took away from my study of Noah was how unlike Noah I was. I mm. I became increasingly aware of um, how much I come short because uh, the, the Hebrew uses some pretty exact language that Noah did everything that God called him exactly as God did. Yeah. And I realized I don't. 
But I'm very thankful that irrespective of the measure of my faith, the person in whom I place my faith in, that's what matters ultimately. So I might have just infinitesimally small faith, but I serve a very faithful God. 100%. 100%. And I, I, of course, agree with that. I, uh, we could all wish to have the faith like Noah, you know, and pray for that. And we, and we should. I'm reminded of, the, of the, um, the man who desired healing uh, in the New Testament and said, you know, Jesus, help my unbelief. You know, yeah. um, often nice. it's easier sometimes just in our flesh and in our sin to see the storm, you know, instead of to see the sovereign. And and, you know, I like how you put that because, you know, there was this book that was written, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Well, if you want to survive the flood, you have to have an ark. And fortunately, we don't even have to build that ark anymore. We simply have to place our faith in Jesus, who provides the salvific vehicle for yeah. salvation. Yeah. You you said, um, that's actually one of, my, one of my favorite quotes from the book, is that the arc, A-R-C, the arc of salvation within the flood narrative can be broken into two main ideas. God's intention for his creation is not thwarted, that's first. And then secondly, God commits himself to his intentions of creation. And you say his intention for creation can be stated as thus, the establishment of order via covenant, showing the sanctity of human life and the upholding of all life. Um, can you elaborate on that just a little bit, just in the context of, of really what you just said, the fact that ultimately we can place our faith in Jesus, who is God, you know, because of his care and intent for creation? Sure. I, I just want to point out a little thing. That's just one of those small puns. And me and my editor went back and forth to decide whether or not we should keep it in. And we thought, <laughs> no, it's contrary to my nature to have left that pun out. But Here's another little story. As I was carefully editing my work for publication, I came across this one part where it was supposed to have said, this study concludes dot, dot, dot. But because of autocorrect, it actually said, this stud concludes dot, dot, dot. And I thought, I wonder if I should leave that and just allow people to see if that was intentional or not. But I decided that it was more prudent to replace that and to make it this study concludes. But to go back to my main argument, to go back to my main thesis, I want to go back to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, his arms were outstretched to both thieves, to both insurrectionists, to both rebels, to both terrorists. His grace was sufficient for all, but it was only efficient for few. God is not willing that any should perish. His entire intention from the beginning of creation was blessings. And at the beginning of my book, I mentioned the difference between redemption and salvation. And salvation is entrance into blessing. And Genesis 6 through 8 provide the opportunity in the schematic for the entrance into blessing, which is in fact Genesis 9 and the blessing with all of creation. And so that concept and that idea of God's grace is sufficient for all, but it is efficient for few. God is not pleased with the death of any. He is wanting all to come to a saving knowledge of him. Yeah. Um, well, we're we're getting close to time, although, 
you know, I could talk about this stuff all day. Uh, unfortunately, we both have other commitments that are going to force us to, uh, to move on. I, I do want to, in light of this, and, and by the way, one of the things I love, it was so refreshing to read a book about the flood that was not overly concerned with how literally did they did they take things and how and this and you know and trying to compare it with ancient near eastern flood myths and all of this it was so nice to just read a, a great book on the theology of the flood and god's intentions for humanity um that said there are of course lots of um, people, especially listening to this podcast, given that it does have you know a focus on the issues of creationism that we often talk about, about things like where this flood sits with respect to the flood stories of the ancient Near Eastern cultures um, from around Israel as well, and of course questions like you know did it really happen? Did they really believe it happened? And and does the text seem to indicate that it was historical? Does it matter that we think about it? Um, and maybe as just my last question here, before we talk about some ways that we can get in touch with you, I would just love to have any thoughts that you have around how important the historicity of it is. And if the A&E cultures from around and their flood stories, if that threatens what we can take out of the biblical flood story. When a person watches a movie like Harry Potter or when a person watches a movie like Star Wars, there's great themes of salvation and redemption and great themes of overcoming. But those are all fictional environments and fictional characters. And the entire scenario changes dramatically when even when you know that at the beginning of a movie, these events are based on a true story. And we know how often Hollywood yeah. loves to stereotype that and, in my opinion, balloon it beyond credibility. But when it comes to the flood, we know that the Bible wants to go out of its way to portray and to purport that this is a historical event. And even John Walton and Tremper Lawman in The Lost World of the Flood say, yes, it happened. And I continue to stand by that conviction. The flood is a real event. And one of the most interesting aspects with respect to the ancient Near Eastern culture is the covenant and the bow. When you read mm. all of the ancient Near Eastern epics, there is no precedent for the covenant and for the bow and for the salvific message that comes with it. That is, I believe, one of the greatest ways that we can be confident that this is divine revelation because no human being at that time would have had the conceptual framework. Their cognitive environment would have never allowed them to have understood a God who wants to enter into a covenant relationship with them in order to provide salvation and entrance into blessing. And no ancient Near Eastern individual would have ever conceptualized a God. At the very beginning of my book, I have a quote from the Psalms. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. There is no precedent for that within the ancient Near Eastern literature. All the gods cowered in fear. All the gods were worried that the sky was going to fall. Only our God, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. Wow. I have a question 
based on that fantastic response that I wasn't going to ask, but now I think I have to ask it. So here's what I want to do, because we still have a couple minutes. Um, first, I'd like to take uh, another detour into where folks can find you, and it may be quick, and that's fine, um, because I think more people need to be exposed to your work, and you're also just a very cordial guy. I don't get the sense Thanks. that you are afraid to talk to people. Um, and uh, and any questions that they have, I think rather than you know write articles online bashing like some people do, I think they could just ask you and have a great conversation with you. Um, so please let us know the best way for us to be able to keep up with your work. And then I have one more question based on that excellent response you just gave. Sure. So one of the easiest ways to be in touch with me because I'm involved with Miller College of the Bible, I have a faculty webpage and I have a faculty email. So it's very easy to go to the Miller College of the Bible website and just click on my picture and send me a message. And I don't want to put you in a tight spot, Steve, but I assume that if people wanted to touch base with you, that you could liaison if you felt comfortable with that. The other way simply is you can probably be in touch with me on Facebook. I have a public profile and I I like to engage in that platform because it's a very uh, well uh, received social media platform for different aspects. You can go through my college uh, faculty webpage or you can just touch base with me through uh, Facebook. Fantastic. That's awesome. And um, you've done quite a few interviews with other podcasts and uh, some other YouTube channels, and I'm sure you'll continue to do those. I know I'd like to figure out what else we can talk about and uh, and get you back as soon as possible. So um, I'm sure you'll be around. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, here's what I wanted to ask, because when you went into talking about the covenant and the, and the bow, I think it's extremely significant. And one of the phrases or the sentences here that you had in your book, you said this, that God was exercising his sovereign care over all aspects of the deluge. And um, literally the thought that I had when you were talking about that is, well, that was true right up to the very end. I mean, there was clearly a purpose. This is not something that God did willy-nilly. Um, he knew before the foundation of the world that it was going to happen, and he had sovereign purposes throughout it. But of course, looking around, it, you think about it as having been such a chaotic scene. Would you be able to just kind of elaborate on maybe some of the ways that God exercised his sovereign care throughout this great time of turmoil? Well, obviously, it's the fact that there was a seed or a remnant. And the remnant theology is all throughout Scripture. So in particularly when you read Ezekiel and he talks about all the different ways that God is going to judge Israel for her sins and Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms. He says if Noah was around, he'd only be able to save himself. If Job was around, he'd only be able to save himself. If Daniel was around, he'd only be able to save himself. But at the time of the flood, it wasn't like that. He provided a seed of all different forms of life, and he provided a remnant. And that remnant theology, I believe, is demonstrative of a sovereign care. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Perfect. Thank you, Dustin, so much for your time today. It has been just a fantastic conversation. I think people are going to learn a lot. And uh, I think we covered some things in this one that were a little different from some of the other interviews. And so they covered some things that we didn't cover. So again, I would just uh, encourage you to keep up with Dustin's work. Um, I think you're going to find a, a lot of him in the future. And uh, that's a really good thing because we need more who are doing the kind of work that he's doing. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Burlett, and thank you all for listening and uh, tuning in. And we'll see you guys on the next one. You bet. Thank you again very much.